You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process. And we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers. And we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person. And that starts with our personal Personal check-in. Let's do it. Wow. Okay. We're still here. We made it. We're still here. I, I, I meant, wait, I said it as a statement, but maybe it should also be a question. Like we're, we're still here. Are we, are we still here? 2021 is here. Season three is here. Yeah. It's this like, is, like NBC, like does your, does your pilot get canceled kind of thing? You're like, no, we've got season three. <laughs> we're still here. Thank you. Are. everybody. Yeah. It's an honor. It's an honor. It's, it really does feel like a privilege, you know, Jess and, and, I know it hasn't, we haven't really left our listeners wanting for that long, right? So, hey, right. you guys, you're welcome. You're welcome. We didn't go on a long hiatus. And I don't, I think that the spirit of this podcast makes sense. You got to keep these conversations going. You can't take a break because these issues really matter. So it's an honor to be back with you for a third season. I'm pinching myself a little bit. I'm excited. I'm excited to be here, but well, me we got to stay on brand. We got to stay on brand oh, yeah, yeah. And, and actually check in. Give the people what they want, what Give they're the used to. What they want. That's right. That's right. Catch our listeners up on all the things since they last heard from you a whole month ago, a month a and a half ago. You know, a lot happens in six weeks, though. I mean, a lot happens in, in 20. Yeah. In this day and age, a whole yeah, a lot that's happens a, in a 20 hours. That's right. Yes. I think we're all aware of this new term, right? Or not new term, but the term of news cycle. So to avoid even addressing news cycles, we'll just talk about our lives. And so mm-hmm. I'll give my, I'll give some folks some updates since the last time you heard from us. Two big things. Well, one big thing and one sort of like, you know, recurring moment is my birthday just happened. Hey. Yeah. So I turned 45, which is, I have to take my glasses off for this because I'm still like in rub my forehead. <laughs> Because on so many levels, I don't even, I mean, 45 is great. I'm actually looking forward to turning 50. So I, I'm not like that weird, oh my gosh, I'm old, getting older. You're actually, not perpetually like trying to turn 29, right? That's, yeah, that's not true. Yeah, thing. yeah. It's just that it's happening so fast. The clips are feeling faster and faster. So that's really more why I'm just like slow down, but I'm really enjoying the process of getting older. So that's fun. So birthday celebrations and all that stuff in the middle of a first class pandemic are interesting. And this will be my first in the pandemic because last year I had my birthday and then it went into crazy town. So this I get to join the club of everybody whining about their birthday celebration, not being like it used to. But, you know, nothing's like it used to. I had a lovely time and I feel loved and that's all that matters. And Facebook loves you because it tells you about your 500 people who have noticed that it's your birthday. So you always feel recognized. It's all good. Those always felt good. Like I'm not even on Facebook anymore, but even the ones where I know, I know they just hit the autofill. That's right. Still felt, still felt good. Like, Hey, you took the time to do that. And I I appreciate it. (laughs) It's so true. You're like, oh, thank you for even caring. Because I know I don't do it every day. Rarely do I do that. So when people actually like acknowledge you on social media, you're like, wow, that's a significant moment. And then the other big update for those who followed us for the last two years, you will remember that my son was accepted into Morehouse College in Atlanta. That was a big moment for us. And then you all took the journey and you realized Mm -hmm. he was going to take a gap year. And he's done that. Um, he's in the middle of his gap year. And it's got, it was a real pivotal year for him as he got the opportunity to really think about what he wanted to do in his future and where he wants to go. And so, you know, it's sad because you're giving up something, but he has decided now he's going to Florida Atlantic. So my son is now going to Florida Atlantic. And for those of us, this is going to be captured in real audio forever and always. He's also going to walk on for their football really? team. Wow. So. We're excited about that because he's in the best shape of his life and has a real good shot. So I'm excited and really happy that he's happy. So that's our big update. And I know people are like, Morehouse, what in the world? But there's that's a whole nother episode. We could do that on just, you know, self-determination and making hard decisions that you, mm. that you make in life. 
sometimes you make tough decisions that fill you up as a person and will provide you the motivation and like fuel to do your best. And this decision that he's making to go to Florida Atlantic is giving him that fuel. So I'm thrilled for him because he's happy. Wow. So what about you? I've got one going to college. Oh, you've got one. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, that is like, yeah, you've got them second, right. Second grade and under. So second grade and under and yeah. Yeah. So I think the biggest update for me, it feels like this, I'm getting whiplash with like how time has been working. I was even telling you before we hopped on how much this podcast has really been such a blessing for me personally, just to audibly process out loud with my friend, putting aside the fact that we get the privilege to talk to amazing people that are doing amazing things. Learning from them is one thing, but also just processing out loud life as it happens has been a real gift to go on this journey with you, Jess, it really has. And I think one of the things that kind of helped me process this past week is enrolling my littlest son in preschool and realizing how long we're coming up on a year in this pandemic, my second to youngest daughter will have skipped preschool altogether. So when we go back, you know, you know, Lord willing in the fall for school, you know, we went from a year ago, she's just going to skip that whole, that whole milestone that you're kind of used to that helps you process, right? Oh, they do this, then they do this and do this, this. right? (laughs) Same thing with you and Trey, right? Like there's just these things you just take for granted. And now when we go back, we're going to go from adding one child at a time to school to, oh no, all of them are now going to go. And it's just, it's hard. It's like, man, I, I don't even know what to do with that. It makes yeah, it me feel, head. it does, mess it does a little bit. It's like, are we in this weird time loop? And almost, honestly, like, I don't want them to grow up this fast, but I do think that the word resilience comes to mind for me as I think about almost as a bridge to this theme in my own life. And also I think one of the themes we're going to see in this season is we're going to talk about what it means to to be resilient, what that means to be in resilient in relationships, how, how relationships around us can help us build resilience for, to push for change, how that needs to kind of be this community effort and talk to some really resilient people and also help our listeners develop the personal resilience they need in their own lives. Because I don't know about you, Jess, like it just feels like we're at this stage in the pandemic where I heard something about this when it comes to the post 9-11 world. It was the boom of reality TV right after 9-11 because yeah. people just wanted to check out of hard things. Yeah. You know, it's not an accident that the roaring 20s happened right after World War One and a pandemic of their own in, you know, 1918. And I think for us, that yeah. what we're going to try to do is kind of swim upstream a little bit. And we got to really develop the muscles of resilience to continue to lean into difficult subject matter that is incredibly important at a time where a lot of people just kind of want to just, they don't want to touch this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and I think for us in season one, we were kind of coming from a pre-pandemic world of, hey, things are better than they are now. Let's lean into hard things. Now it's the backdrop of COVID, a really hard 2020. And yet we still need to have these conversations. So and in a way that is accessible and tangible, meaning, you know, you can take you can take on this podcast and do something with it and not feel overwhelmed. And I that's right. Think not be, that, not feel paralyzed. It, need, it needs right. to be accessible and, and we need to still equip you to meet you where you are and take a step. And that's yeah. what we're going to keep doing. We're going to keep doing, we're going to, we're going to wade into these waters. And so, love it, man, I'm, I am so excited to kick this off with our guests today. I keep yeah. interrupting because I'm excited, but go ahead. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> really excited about this. I'm excited about this interview. I'm excited about just the time. This is our first episode. Lots of excitement over here. Okay, I'm be quiet. Go ahead, Rob. So for so for our listeners, uh, we're going to welcome on to the call today uh, Osha Gray Davidson. Osha, are you are you there? Can you hear us? Okay, I can hear you just fine. Hey, wonderful, Osha. Wonderful. Thank you so much for, for being with us. We're, we're thrilled to have you. It really is. You're someone that we've been following your story, what you've been putting out for a while now. This feels a little bit of full circle for us, Jess, because you know this is a Durham-based podcast. Yeah. And now we're getting to welcome you, Osha, as an author of the book, Best of Enemies. I'm going to roll out your official bio here in a second. You have a lot more than that going on and you have a, a really impressive resume. But I know for us, 
really wanting to lean into issues of injustice being based here in Durham, this has been like the conversation I almost feel like we've been building towards for three years. And there's going to be a really amazing way to both reflect back on some of the conversations that we've been having and then set the course for how we have these conversations in the coming year. And so you're coming in at a really pivotal moment, I think, for us and can be a really, really powerful bridge. For those of you who don't know, let me tell you a little bit more about Osha before he tells us about himself. Osha is a freelance writer and author of six works of nonfiction, including The Best of Enemies, Race and Redemption in the New South, which if you haven't picked that up, go ahead and multitask if you're not in the car and go ahead and order it on Amazon because you're going to want to at the end of this conversation. This was a book that was a finalist for the New York Public Library's Helen Bernstein Award for Excellence in Journalism. It's been adapted for stage and screen. He's a producer and host of the documentary podcast, The American Project. The first season explores the issue of reparations for slavery and its legacy, which we you know talk about being a bridge to the conversations we were just having as we landed the plane for season two. OSHA's also written for National Geographic, the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Forbes, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, The Nation, and other publications. And he hails from Phoenix, Arizona. And so I'm also hoping that he weaves in some fun facts about the West, as well as educating us on a lot of other things. (laughs) It's hot and dry. (laughs) There There it is. Well, Osha, welcome onto the podcast. It is so exciting to have you on with us. You have been an empowering force behind the scenes in shaping a lot of this podcast without your knowledge. I think our listeners will probably put that together very seamlessly if they've been on this journey with us. But before we get into this story that has had such a profound impact on me personally, tell us a little bit more about yourself, you know, stuff that you can't learn from the bio, right? And how did your story kind of motivate you to tell this story, specifically the story, The Best of Enemies, that highlights Durham, North Carolina, and this really unique relationship between Ann Atwater and CPLs. Well, first, Rob and Jess, thank you so much for inviting me to be on, especially the season opener. That's congratulations as a podcast producer who's just finished one season, third season. Man, I'm impressed and envious. Let's see a bit about myself. You know, it's funny because uh, I'm not used to being on this side of the microphone I'm the one usually interviewing people and asking them about their lives. But I grew up in Iowa, which is a predominantly, (laughs) predominantly understates the matter, predominantly white state, more so then, in fact, in the 60s. But it's interesting because one thing that motivated me to tell the story of Ann and CP was the fact that I knew so little about race and what little I knew really was that it's America's largest issue, the thing that's most critical to our future. And I, I knew that, but I didn't know the details of it. And the details aren't, aren't so much details as they are the roots of American history. And I did not know, you know, it's popular to say now that you can't know American history without knowing Black history. But I thought I had a fair handle on American history. No, no, I had I had no real clue. And it seems to me in the past 10 years, and I don't know, maybe this is the work that I've been doing over the past 20 years, there's been this explosion of scholarship that really, because it focuses on Black history, it puts into perspective American history and makes American history understandable. It explains so much of what's happening, what's been going on the past few years, but it's actually been going on since 1619. It was a big journey for me, and it's one I'm still on, the catching up on the real education of America. So the story of Anne and CP was just as a story, a fascinating story. You know, how does a KKK leader and a Black community organizer, a woman, become really best friends. I mean, how is that possible? So I was drawn to it. You know, as a freelance writer, there's this Venn diagram of what moves you? What are your passion projects? And then from a a publisher side, what's important? What do they think is going to sell? And you have to find that overlap in the Venn diagram. And I knew that this story really fit that perfectly. And it turned out to be true. Then that's why it was made into a movie. 
not because of the book, but because the story itself is how could something this unlikely actually occur? So yeah, it's been a, a long journey. And like I said, a continuing journey for me to understand the context in which that relationship happened. And it wasn't anything magical. It was because of the way I saw the book and their story is the reconciling of myth and history. The myth of America that C.P. Ellis, the Klan leader, was completely immersed in, as are so many of us white people, and the actuality, the truth of America, which is what and and most Black people are immersed in. Oh, thank you for that, Osha. That's a great setup for this question that I have for you about these two individuals who lived in the city that I'm sitting in right now. And as we think about, and, and I'm thinking, you know, as the writing process, you're digging, you're doing historic work, you're developing these characters that are real, but trying to bring them forward in a way that the reader is compelled, right? And really trying to be honest about that story. And I'm, so I, it's, this is an interesting question because we want to villainize, right? We want to pick sides and you don't really allow us to do that because there are attributes, right, of each that are required in order to get you to that sort of moment, that big crescendo where you do see, and Rob's going to talk about this, this unique friendship. Can you share with our listeners what attributes of each, both CP and Anne, that that you admired, that you look at the, you look back and you're like, you know, these two individuals are incredible. And here are the, here are the things that I admire about them uniquely as people and as community members. I don't know about uniqueness when it comes to this with Anne Atwater, but her, like you said, resilience. Oh man, life had thrown racism, i.e. life, had thrown so much at her. The fact that she not only never gave up, but she increased her capacity to fight. She never compromised on her core principles of progress. And even when it came to CP, there was no compromise involved for her. She fought against racism and for black power her entire life. And it just grew stronger and stronger. And it grew after the encounter that's covered in the book and the, the friendship with CP. So her tenacity and I guess not resilience as much, but her tenacity is, is what stood out to me. She was just this towering presence in Durham's history, and she became a towering presence in my life of kind of a, a role model for mm -hmm. me to keep on fighting. That doesn't matter whether you're black or white. That This is an American struggle that if you have any true allegiance to this country, fighting racism has to be part of your core values. I guess the other part of, of Anne that I admired so much was her allegiance to humanity that really came through religion for her. The way she became friends with CP was because her religion commanded it. Mm -hmm. And she saw the humanity in everyone, even her arch enemy who tried to kill her. It's paradoxical balance that she did, that she never compromised her fight to become friends with CP. It had to be on the terms of equality that they would become friends. He was the one who had to do the movement. Right. Because you talk about no villains, but his behavior was villainous. Yeah. And she saw that. She never gave an inch on confronting that. And yet at the same time, because of her religion, she did not allow herself to take his humanity away from him. It's kind of a cliched thing to talk about this religious fervor and commitment to religion as a motivator. And it isn't with everybody. But with Anne, to use a phrase, it was the gospel truth. Switching to CP. Yeah. What I admired most about him, of course, was his capacity to change. Sure. But it was his capacity to change, even though he knew everything he was giving up to change. He was the one in the relationship who had to change. And it takes nothing away from Anne because Anne, <laughs> Anne was a good person all along. But CP was not. He did horrible things. He was a horrible person. Mm -hmm. But once he realized what was going on, that what he had believed, what he had been taught, it was all lies, he changed 
and he gave up pretty much everything for it. But when I asked him about that, about the difficulty of that, he just kind of shrugged it off and he laughed and he said, well, I saw that I saw it was it wasn't true. Uh, the things I taught and said, what do you do when you find out when you learn the truth? Do you pretend that you didn't see the truth? He said, I didn't have a choice in that. But in fact, he did have a choice because everybody does. And there are far too many people who cling to the myths that they were taught because it gives them power, privilege, prestige. And CP had all of that as head of the clan. He was a leader. He was respected. And a lot of it was from the white elite of Durham, whose dirty work he was doing. It was fake. He was not their friend. He just did their dirty work. But amongst his peers, he really was respected. And he went virtually overnight from that to being reviled and facing death threats. He was alone after that. He had no world to live in. And he knew that when he made the decision. He saw the future and he knew how bleak it was for him. But he said he didn't, to me, he said that he didn't have a choice. And that goes to his kind of strange to say about a clan leader, but his moral values of doing what he thought was right and following the truth. He had been following this mythology and he opted to be on the right side of, of history, regardless of the cost. But he has been a huge role model for me whenever I think I can't change something or uh, that something's too much of a stretch that, hey, if CP could do it, <laughs> you need to step up. Yeah. Thank you. Osha, one of, the, one of the themes for season three is we want to focus on this concept of fusion friendships, this idea of people forming right. bonds across difference. Not, not exclusively race, but I think in this case is what happened to pursue common goals and, and, share, and identifying kind of shared interests, which is very much a part of what happened in their friendship. Tell us what lessons can we learn from their friendship and how do we apply those lessons into today's divided culture? Mm. Honestly, it's crazy to say this, but when you talk about a former head of the Klan and a civil rights activist, in some ways, it almost feels like that feels like less daunting than the chasms that exist between us today. How can this be a blueprint for forming these type of relationships? And I think you've alluded to this a little bit in who, you know, the, the role each of them had to play in their friendship. How can that be a blueprint for us today in forming similar relationships? And how do we do it? <laughs> That's a, a great question. And I don't have any really easy answers for that because like you said, the situation isn't exactly analogous to what's going on today. One lesson for white people is the fact that in becoming friends, Anne didn't have to change anything. It was CP who needed to make the change. So holding fast to your principles and yet not dehumanizing the other person, I believe that's a lesson that still holds. For Anne's side of it, one lesson that anybody is capable of change. If CP could change, anybody can change. And so it's why over the past four years, I've broken off friendships with people who were advocates of Donald Trump and Trumpism, because I recognize, like a lot of us did, seems pretty obvious what he stood for. Racism, division, fascism, anti-democracy. And I was open. In fact, I've reconnected on at least one friendship because that person realized that, yeah, that's not the way to go. And so being open to the humanity, never dehumanizing other, the other. And that's one thing that's bothered mm. me over the past four years, mm. calling Trump followers some form of dehumanization. Mm. And it, it's important to remember, these are humans. And it doesn't mean you cut them slack. It just mm. means you don't preclude the possibility of change. And that's what I got from CP. If he can change, anybody can change. If there's a blueprint here, it's being open to the possibility of change, but without compromising from Anne, your core principles. She examined her core principles to make sure, are there things that I've believed, are they really true? Are they still true? And one thing that she believed for a time was that all white people were evil. And she realized, no, not all white people are evil, but even more importantly, the ones who are 
evil have the capacity to change. And that capacity to change is really the most salient point of this book. That's it. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a, it's not even just it, right? That's so powerful. Got, I'm very introspective right now. It's almost like we need to do a re-release of the book in schools and, or a release of the book in schools for required reading. And then also a re-release of the movie. There's just so many lessons there. And I appreciate Osha, your reminder. It's again, simple, but not simplistic. This idea that as long as we are, we are human, right? And we consider and we can see the humanity in others, that the power to change exists. Absolutely. There was a psychologist, could have been Eric Erickson, I'm not sure, but he talked about pseudo-speciation, which is this belief that somebody, and, it, and with racism, it, it was actually the science-based idea that different races are different species. And the word pseudo, prefacing that, meaning false, was that we're not different species. And there's this inherent bias from growing up in a racist society, white supremacist society, that really is a form of pseudo-speciation mm -hmm. that dehumanizes, so it's a different species. I understood this growing up as a Jew in the Midwest in the shadow of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. where I learned from an early age that Jews were considered a different species by Nazis. And I, the way I was treated sometimes, the first job I applied for when I was 14, I think, I didn't get. And it was as a dishwasher at a country club. And I didn't get it because the guys looked at my form. There were two of us, a Christian friend of mine and me. And this guy who was doing the hiring looked at the said, oh, yeah, we need both of you to start on Monday. And then he looked at the forms and he looked at them again. And it, back then you had to write your religion down. I don't know if that's still allowed. But he looked at the forms. He said, which one's the Jew? Mm. And I raised my hand and he turned. He never said another word to me. He turned to my friend and said, we just need one person. You start on Monday. So I have this tiny taste. I, I don't want to overdo this because the kind of discrimination I face as a white Jew is nothing like the kind of discrimination that virtually all blacks face in the United States. But it gave me this tiny taste of being dehumanized and looked on as a different species. I mean, I didn't know that word back then, but it was so powerful. And maybe that helped me want to pursue this because of pseudo-speciation. Mm -hmm. It probably is a motivator. I mean, those things mark you. You kind of become yeah. part of your DNA. It becomes part of your why. It solidifies your values, at least for me. This, and I appreciate the story. I mean, I understand that there that's very different experiences, but appreciate the storytelling because the it's through stories like that. Even your taste of that sort of discrimination and the devaluing of you. One minute you were valued, and within a second you were not. That is powerful for people to hear because it wasn't based on how you quote unquote looked. It was based on your religion. And just like that, your value shifted and changed for another person. And so I think this idea of the power of change is just something we should hang on to for our listeners, something that I'm thinking through. Because sometimes you're just like, oh, you look at every, you're just like, but can they? Like Donald Trump's a good example. You're kind of like, but really? I mean, <laughs> uh, it would be. It would be like the breakthrough of the century. Anyways, I, I digress. Let's talk about Durham. Naturally, Anne and CP are the, you know, that's the, that's the juice. That's the exciting sort of like, you're watching it grow, that crescendo I'm talking about. You're excited about how this, this relationship is changing and you feel hopeful through it. And then there's this sort of bigger story that's also personified that has a life, right? Which is Durham. And it's like that other character that's taking place and like hanging about, <laughs> moving and shaping and guiding this narrative. Rob and I are curious where I'm sitting and Rob's in Durham too. I'm like, I can see out into the city. And so I'm just curious, you know, what, why did you, you could have told the story many different ways and through different angles. You could have really not given the life to the city of Durham though, in the way in which you did. So why did you decide to tell the story in the way that you did? At one level, it's really simple to understand Anne and CP's relationship. Why they were enemies and how they became friends makes absolutely no sense without the context of the place and time. Yes. Otherwise, focusing just on their relationship without that 
is, I don't know, totally bogus. It couldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened someplace else in the same way. Mm-hmm. And there's also a more personal thing for me. I'm an amateur historian. Almost everything I've written, certainly all the books I've written, have dealt with the history of the place because I'm a firm believer that context is too often neglected and things don't make any sense without their context. Now, I've heard from readers, not from readers, I've heard readers discussing this online about they saw the movie, like the movie, and then they read the book. And there's this one group that I listened to who said, yeah, we got the book. And oh my God, it was unreadable. It was all this history. And I thought, well, but, but, and they, but they, I will say they, they ended up saying, yeah, you wouldn't have understood their story if you didn't know the history of the place. But they never forgave the fact that a lot of people don't like reading straight out history. And I may have overdone it because I'm fascinated by history. One of the premises of the book was that there are these competing forces in American life of our creation story, how America was created, and that's the American myth. And then there's history, there's reality. And those two things do not align yet. And I tend to think, I mean, and definitely in CP and Ann's story, that played a large part, the aligning of those things, where CP understood the history somewhat that allowed him to understand the present more. The battle between history and mythology in America goes on today, continues. Mm. I was just going to jump in. It felt like you were, uh, you were acknowledging one group that was throwing stones. I'm going to say I- I'm in the group that's like standing in front of you, catching those stones, being like, hey, no, no, no. The history is so huge. You don't understand their relationship without the context. I'm I'm like amening over here when you're saying oh, you know, the, the importance of context, because I read the book first before I watched the movie. And I think obviously we're biased here. Like if you're a Durham native, you're if you're a North Carolina native, then that's going to be more relevant to you. So I understand someone that, you know, halfway across the world watching the movie that the relationship was what they really only maybe cared about. But to me, you just don't understand these characters unless you understand the city and the time and the place that shaped them. And also, you're not going to be able to have much hope for seeing that play out in other places if you remove them from the context, because every relationship exists within context. So I, I'm I'm in the other group. I just want to acknowledge that other group. So I think a lot of our listeners probably are as well, because if they're still listening to us by now, we've done a whole lot of, a lot of backdrop in context over our past two seasons. So I think that sets up one of the things that really struck me most from the book as we're wading through the complexity and nuance that you really can't accomplish in 90 minutes on screen is this one quote that is still in the back of my mind that has stuck with me ever since I read it was you talk about race and class as the Siamese twins of the South. Could you unpack that a little bit more for our listeners? How did you observe this concept playing out? back in 1971, which is the time in which this story took place. And how do you see that playing out now, literally 50 years to the year later now in in 2021 America? Yeah, well, to be honest, I don't know that I would use that phrase if I were writing the book now. And in part, that's because I've learned since I've written the book. I mean, I've been learning since then. Just for perspective's sake, more time has passed between when I wrote the book and today than the amount of time between when the charrette was that brought them together and when I wrote the book. So when I was writing it, I was thinking this is ancient history. Uh, so I've, I've learned more, far more now that, and this doesn't necessarily negate it, that thing about Siamese twins, but it, it's given me more perspective on it. Class-based solutions won't solve race-based problems. And too often, that's what I've heard. The solutions need to be our class-based. There's a practical reason why people are saying that because of the unfriendliness by the Supreme Court of dealing with race head-on. So I'm thinking in particular of the educational affirmative action decisions that first said that you can only use race as one part of affirmative action. And then later, I think they went even further and said, no, you you can't use race. And so class has become a stand-in for race. So like 
when people are talking about, there's been the debate, of course, on forgiving college debt. And the argument has been made, and it makes my blood boil every time I hear it, that, oh, this will help black people more than white people. So it's really a racial solution. That's garbage. That's not true. Uh, yeah, it, it may disproportionately help black people more. But if you want to tackle race-based problems, you have to have race-based solutions. So that's a long-winded way of saying that this Siamese twin thing can be head into dangerous territory where we conflate race and class. They're very different things. And I don't know that they're necessarily joined at the hip anymore. But that said, racism was brought into existence as a way to serve class. It was a way to dehumanize black people to allow slavery. And slavery was free labor. For white people, that was the hallmark of, of slavery. You just meant, oh, good, we've got free labor. That's great. So there's this huge connection between class and race, but they're not substitutes for each other. I guess one, one more thing is the issues that CP saw as racial were actually often class-based because the wealthy class in Durham despised him at least as much and probably more than they despise black people. So there is this connection that CP came to realize that the problems that were blamed on race were really to smooth over the class-based society that he was born into as, you know, they considered him a lint head because his dad worked in a cotton factory and poor white trash. And by blaming black people for this, it gave him a way of escaping, he thought, of escaping the effects of class. It turned out to be a false promise. He never had any money as a Klan leader. He really didn't benefit except psychologically, which is a huge thing, and that was the appeal. And some money, but really almost nothing. I mean, he, he was poor his entire life. He lived in a trailer when I met him. He did not get any money out of his conversion. He didn't get any money from being clan leader. He got a chance to see the world as it was. And to him, that was worth it. And to see both class and race. And the fact that he became a union leader, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead in what after he left the clan, he became a union leader in an, between 80 and 90 some percent black union. And it was an elected position. And when he was when he was running for union steward of this 80 to 90 percent black union, his opposition brought in photos of a guy in a Klan robe and said, this is who you black people are going to be voting for to represent you. And CP turned to a black leader who he had met through the charrettes. There were a lot of black heroes within this movement that helped CP. And one of them came down to the union voting place and held up the picture and said, this is who CP used to be. This is who CP is now and pointing to just CP and said, I urge you to vote for him. And I think in large part because of religion, but I'm not sure. A lot of the black workers in the union said, okay, He's been redeemed. We know that story. And they voted for him. And CP became a union leader. His organizing, his leadership, qualities that he developed within the Klan, he just transferred them to the union. And he became this charismatic union leader. But he was fighting for the rights of all workers. And he told me one story. He was at a factory, you know, speaking to the workers there. And as he left, this was soon after he had left the Klan and become a union leader. A woman came up to him and said, Mr. Ellis, I just wanted to talk to you. She was white. And she said, uh, I'm being discriminated against because I'm a lesbian. And I want you to do something about that. And CP said to me, said, my first thought was, oh, my God, a lesbian. And then his next thought, he said, was, oh, hell, I've been... I've become friends with Jews and blacks. I might as well fight for lesbians. It doesn't matter. Um, and he said he realized that that's the dangerous part about loving, that mm -hmm. once you start letting people into your heart, it's hard to, to block groups of people anymore. Yep. So he fought for her 
And he just, uh, he saw that there are all these overlapping things, not just class, gender, sexual orientation, just all sorts of, of issues that get mixed up. And what he saw was, no, you fight for the dignity of all workers. And that's what made him a great union leader. So enjoying this, Rob. Are you just like I'm so leaned in? Again, people can't see us, but I'm like totally leaned into this. That last story that you told about the woman that he, you know, supported, and it was interesting to me because that to me is a really defining moment around really testing your core values. Really, I mean, because you you have all of this history of making these choices, and you know, you're you're kind of like you threw the gauntlet down, but does it? Are you still exclusionary? Does love cover all people? Do you see people with a hu- with the humanity that you eventually saw and through, especially if it's not guided through a spiritual lens and it's just a core value? So here this woman tests his core values. Right. Absolutely. I, I really do think that's fascinating because it's like, man, I've been through all of these things, right? Do I want to do it again? And he's like, no, but my core value is driving this. So whether I want to or not, I must because it's it's who it's in again in my DNA. And I sort of love how your the DNA got reconstructed. It's like yeah, got yeah, and, and it it shows. I mean, people talk about racism being in our DNA. I know that the sixteen nineteen project came uh, by the New York Times, got fire for saying that racism is part of the the United States in our DNA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But she meant that as not literal DNA, obviously, and that, yeah, we can reconstruct that DNA. Yeah. And in fact, the only thing that will save us as a country and, and make us great is if we do reconstruct that DNA and that we can. Mm -hmm. And that, to me is uh, people miss a lot of white people miss the point people i heard from who objected to that miss the point that of that whole thing is look we this is what cp had to do he had to confront the myth mm-hmm. of american history mm-hmm. as that we're this classless we're the greatest nation in the in the history of the world that wasn't true but it can become true and it does we it doesn't really to me it doesn't make any difference how we measure up to other countries. It's what are we going to do for ourselves? What are we going to do here to perfect this country? We've got this great creed as William Darity, who you've had on your program, who's one of my mentors, talked about what can we do to live up to our creed? And as he put it on the podcast, whether or not we institute reparations says a lot about whether the American creed has any meaning. Mm. And I, I tend to agree with that. Yeah, that's perfect segue into the American project. So you're, you're talking about this new podcast that you have out. And yes, our friend Sandy Darity, who's a friend of the Just Podcast, helped support. Glad to hear he's a mentor. He's, I mean, we, we think he's incredible and provided our listeners with just the facts, ma'am, right? Just the facts. And so it was really, really special to have him in such close proximity to us, right? Because he's here locally, but also just his incredible insight and historical perspective on this work. So talk to our listeners about the American Project. You You just shared why, a little bit about your why, like why are you really focused on reparations? I love this. It's sort of like the what can we do moment. It's like our show up moment, right? That we're going to talk about in a second. But like, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about your podcast? We want to make sure that they get over from ours to yours after this to dig a little deeper into this work. So just tell us, I want to give the floor to you because I think this is an important sort of phase of work that you're in. And and I want to make sure our listeners know what you're up to and the impetus for it, the why. You've got the floor, friend. Okay, thank you. When the movie was going to come out, came out in 2019, the adaptation of The Best of Enemies. And I had been writing on all sorts of different issues for for a few decades. Marine biology, all sorts of very, very different gun control, very different things. And I realized, okay, the spotlight 
I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to be invited onto podcasts, although I wasn't thinking of podcasts at the time. I don't know that I knew the word, but this was a year before the film came out. So 2018 and actually into 2017 when it was going into production, I knew I would have a chance to speak. And I thought, okay, what's my responsibility in that? And I realized, okay, well, it's been 20 some years. I need to catch up on the scholarship that's happened. And I found out there had been an explosion of scholarship on race. So I started out with reading Nell Painter's book, The History of White People, was probably the first book that I read, which was totally amazing. And I just loved it. Over that course of time, I was reading all these books about race. And I realized, okay, so there's all these other things that have been learned and that I was learning about. Ibram Kendi's books, one of your local authors, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, also played an important role in this, uh, reconstructing the gospel, things like that. He talks about Christian nationalism, which is what CP was part of. I realized, well, look, in the book, I don't want to just talk about the best of enemies. When I have a chance to speak, that book was about reconciling the myth of America with the history of America, but it really didn't do anything for solutions. Didn't talk about solutions to the legacy of racism, of, of white supremacy, of slavery, and its legacy of Jim Crow, redlining, all sorts of things. I thought, okay, I should focus on solutions. I thought, oh my God, solutions. It was so much easier when I was just writing, you know, the history and the story of these people. But what about solutions to it? And I thought, okay, you have an obligation to talk about, you know, what you think are, are the best solutions. And that became immensely exciting, daunting and exciting. I noticed, I kept hearing about reparations, which I had heard of before, but never uh, in, a, in a really powerful way to me. And I listened to all these YouTube talks about reparations. I read all these, I'd searched reparations, read all this stuff, and I realized the name Sandy Darity kept popping up. It was him on like 80% of these YouTube videos, and they were over decades. And I read his work, and I realized this guy is like the solid scholar and a top economist in the U.S., and he's focusing on exactly the issues that I'm interested in. And the more I read and listened, the more I became convinced that reparations is the issue that I should turn to. And I thought, okay, what else after the spotlight goes, what more can I do? Because I, I felt like, well, you know, now that you understand how big a problem racism still is, and you know of a solution, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do about it? I had never done a podcast. And I thought maybe I can reach more people because if you're just operating in a vacuum, it doesn't really matter what you have to say. It might feel good to you, but you need to reach people. And I talked to Sandy. I ended up interviewing him several times and just talking. And I told him my idea of doing a podcast on reparations. I said, but as a white guy, I'm a bit leery about my doing a podcast about reparations. And he said, do not worry about that. Do not stop because of that. He said, there are white people who will not listen to a black man or black woman talking about reparations. That's just the nature of this world. So we also need white people talking about reparations. So if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But don't let that be the reason. Mm -hmm. So I decided, yes, okay, this is something I can do and something I should do. And part of it, I'll admit the personal satisfaction issue, once again, that Venn diagram of something that, that I felt passionate about and is utterly fascinating was the context of reparations, the history. I didn't know that reparations, that Patrick Henry spoke for reparations before the founding of the country. He didn't use the word. What he said was that we need to get rid of slavery if we're going to declare ourselves this freedom-based country, because we're using being enslaved as a reason to get out from under England. Mm. Yet we have slavery, so we can't do that. It just is hypocritical. Of course, he was right. Mm -hmm. The logic in that is astounding. Isn't you know what it? I mean? It's just like... It? Right. Okay. Duh. 
and, it's a problematic rallying cry. Yeah. Right. And the British yeah. used that. And yeah, that, yeah. that's another part that isn't taught much. The British said, ha, you're all hypocrites. You talk mm-hmm. about us enslaving you. You literally have slaves. Right. You've enslaved yeah. people. So Patrick Henry said, we've got to get rid of slavery. And we also have to figure out, well, what do we do with the, all the enslaved people? We've got you know, a lot of people who are suddenly going to be freed and they don't have anything. And he made some suggestions and one was giving them land. And again, he didn't use the word reparations, but that's, it was a practical consideration. Obviously you can't just set people free without any resources and expect them to prosper or even survive. So that was interesting to me to see how far back that went. In 1860, boy, I'm going to forget the exact year, two, three, four, the proclamation of the 40 acres and a mule, Sherman's agreement. There was no mule in the initial statement. It was just for every formerly enslaved family, we'll give 40 acres. And it's land that was confiscated from plantation owners, 40,000 formerly enslaved people actually received the land. It was going to have to go to 4 million. And they had plans to do that. But 40,000 started farming on their former plantations, which was easy for them because here's a fact I didn't know and should have known. Black enslaved people didn't just do the manual labor on the plantations. They're the ones who knew when to plant, how to plant, all of that. The white slave owners didn't know anything about farming. They knew about oppression. But so when these formerly enslaved people received their 40 acres, man, did they prosper. The myth and the racist thing, and the reason it became racist of black people liking watermelon disproportionately came from those 40,000 formerly enslaved people who now had land. It was in the South. They were following Union troops as the Union army was fighting and traveling throughout the South. They grew lots of watermelons because they knew the white soldiers liked the watermelons. They filled carts full of watermelons and sold, followed the troops and sold them and prospered from that. Part of the white racist backlash was to associate black people with those carts of watermelons and to destroy the idea of black entrepreneurship and the fact that they could farm it was turned into a trope of racism that, oh, look, they're grinning and eating watermelon. But in fact, the real basis of that was this powerful black success. Mm-hmm. Land was the initial reparations. After Lincoln was assassinated, Andrew Johnson became vice president, became president. He was the vice president and he was a white supremacist. He rescinded the order And he sent in the army to kick the 40,000 black farmers off the land that they were now farming. No more land was distributed. And that ended the chance that we had for making reparations. And I asked Sandy about if this had worked, would we be talking about reparations now? And he said, you know, there's a strong argument that could be made that if we had followed through on that, that no, we would not need to be talking about reparations now. So there's this long history of the need for reparations. Osha, I, I'm fascinated by this progression, which I think stumbles on this really, it's, it's a really, it's a truth I don't want our listeners to miss. This idea that you moved from this relational story, you know, between Ann Atwater and, and C.P. Ellis, you unpack in the book that this is a much larger story of, a, of the American story. But I think, you know, you, if you came at it from just watching the movie first and often in Hollywood, they do this where you kind of make the friendship as the end goal. And I think we see that playing out nationally now, like when you know, calls for unity, et cetera. And I think this idea of the, the juxtaposition between unity and justice, you know, w- what is our end goal here? Well, what's our end goal? What, what's the nature of the original problem? And I think you can't If you're going to do a shallow dive on the problem, you're probably going to aim lower on the solution. And it's not just a relational solution, although it will entail fusion friendships along the way. But really, I think this idea of naming, you know, yeah, CP and Ann Outwater formed a beautiful friendship. And yet that really wasn't the end of a story. That wasn't the finish line. There is a repairing 
that you're now leaning into that is is really getting at the root of the problem that will lead to kind of the the flourishing of everybody that that is that is includes relationships but is not limited to relational repair you're talking about systemic repair and just the 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 duality of them both needing to coexist to to be made possible right absolutely that's a that's a great point the end of the book was i i did this very purposely the first line of the book the first clause of the first sentence is in the beginning and that's a, obviously a reference to the bible with the creation story and the very last line of the book is dealing with CP after he pulls over to the side of the road and reconciles himself to the fact that, okay, he's changed. He has to go on. He has no idea about how things really are in the world so much as he's wiped the slate clean of the myth. And the end of the book, it ends with the last clause of it's the good beginning. What you said struck me right on the nose that, yeah, that's the beginning. The book ends with a beginning. So what do we do about it? Right. And what did CP do about it? And that's where I'd love to, for our listeners, when they're processing this conversation, we always want to land with a next step. And so what is that next step that you would encourage them? If you could pick one show up moment for our listeners, what would that be on a practical level? Ooh, I feel like I can only address that to white people. Hmm. I'm only qualified to do that. And I would say, I mean, just from my own personal experience, the beginning is to educate yourself. Hmm. You can't really do anything until you understand how we got to where we are. And that's where it started for me, educating myself, reading. You know, this has been an amazing time since I wrote that book. Like I said, more scholarship on race in America. It's really wonderful. It really fills out the American story and schools need to do a better job. But as far as white people... What we can do, well, educate ourselves, but then take action. Align yourself with movements for justice. And to me, the biggest, most important, most critical movement for justice in this country is the fight against white supremacy and the legacy of white supremacy. But we each have our own areas of interest and abilities and using those to be part of this fight to make America live up to its creed of liberty and justice for all. I need to leave it in broad terms because each of us are unique. So find out what you can do to help America live up to its creed. And don't, don't be afraid of encountering your own biases because that's a real, that'll stop you from pursuing justice because you'll feel guilty and guilt is so irrelevant and so deadly to movements for justice. Guilt is a way of avoiding taking action. And it's a natural thing to feel maybe when you realize what your white privileges are and how you've been complicit in this. Drop that, move through that. Okay, accept that you're feeling guilty, but then, okay, now, now back to the real story. What am I gonna do about it? And that's a line that Anne kept saying to CP, what are you gonna do about it? And I think that's something that white people in general really need to ask ourselves. Okay, so so what am I going to do? Love it, love it, love it, Osha. I, I'm sitting here thinking like if people listen to the podcast while they're running or driving, how do they write all these nuggets down? I have a whole page of like notes from our from our talk. I guess people listen to it twice. They go home. There you go. Down the notes. It's all good. Keep listening while you're driving and running. Just, you know, come back home and write your notes down. I'm just like, I'm constantly amazed at what I don't know. (laughs) That's pretty much. You and me both. Constantly (laughs) amazed. So Osha, we are grateful to you for joining us today. Um, We're grateful for your insight, your wisdom, your your pragmatic approach, the way you're able to unpack it for us in a way that is easy to understand. And also it's it's compelling and challenging, all these good words, right? But like, that's how I felt. And I just appreciate you kicking us off in season three. Fusion Friendships is- What an honor. Yeah, I, it's an honor for us, truly. 
it's kind of puts the flag in the ground around the direction that we want to take season three. Rob and I feel like we are a fusion friendship. And so it just feels really good to start with, with you, your perspective, and in CP's perspective, really the spirit of that relationship will take us through season three. So again, we're honored to have you here and thank you for your time. Please check out the American Project friends who are listening. OSHA gave some books and we'll make sure that we get that out there. But like, let's keep pushing this keep pushing forward. The momentum is important. And so this is just one piece of that. So we'll really, again, just appreciate you. Rob and I are grateful to have you here. Season three, episode one. Thanks, friend. Thank you. And it's quite an honor to be on a a podcast coming from the Bull City. I spent a lot of time there and made a lot of friends and learned so much there. I remember somebody told me when I was first writing the book that Chapel Hill is easy to, to love. Durham isn't as easy to love. It requires more of you Mm. to love it. Mm. And uh, I found that to be true. And there's something really solid there Mm. about uh, that that comes to me through Anne and CP, but through Haiti Heritage Center, through all sorts of institutions that gives me love for that city. So thank you. It's an honor. Well, you got count two more friends to the list. Next time you're in the area, we'll uh, got to get together. Welcome Sounds anytime. Good. <laughs> I love that. I would love that. Thank you so much, Osha. Thanks, Osha. Appreciate Thanks. it. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that was amazing. That's an amazing way to start our season. Season three, we're rolling up our sleeves on this one. Yeah, we are. And you know, what I love about it is it's a topic. Again, it's that topic that is accessible. It's, it's two people. Yep. You know, obviously OSHA, this is a, this was OSHA sort of telling, retelling and telling his, his experiences and his insights around two people and how they came to terms, right? One mm-hmm. with, as a huge agent of change through her example, and the other who had to also recognize their ability and power to change. Mm-hmm. And I just find that right now where we are, I just, it's just like, if I have to go back in history to be inspired by that, I will, because I don't often see it right now. Mm. And so I'm grateful to be able to have a real story, not a, but a real, and one that is so personal to us because it's mm. here. like that example was born out of, out of the Bull City. Um, so I'm honored really, and just proud of, of that story and that he was able to bring it to life. The one thing, well, first of all, to our listeners, I was just saying I took a page of notes. Rob and I both same, are same here. Writing. We're, we're, we write down what we think. And so I have a page of notes. So does Rob. And the one, and literally there's so many things that stick out. But one thing I want to just point out is that he said history illuminates the present. And for me, when he said that, I was like, yes, that history is illuminating our current state right now. And it also provides the light of where, like it's shining the pos- on the possibilities of change. So for me, that is such a beautiful bridge and a great statement, you know, just to end this for me to end that that interview on a high note. It feels like the possibilities are real because of two very regular but determined people to see the truth, to see Mm. the truth and the power of their friendship, their fusion friendship that should inspire us all. So I enjoy that immensely. I'm just fired up today. This is awesome. Yeah. What do you think? What was your, on your page of notes, which one stuff? So hard to choose. So one, yeah, it's like, I have things, a long, long list from that, that I'm going to continue to dwell on after this conversation. But to me, one of the most powerful statements he said when he's quoting, or he's observing what was most powerful about Anne Atwater specifically is this towering presence that he calls Mm -hmm. her in his life, even to this day as a role model. He made me think about me, what, who are those towering presences in my Mm -hmm. life? that I need, I'm learning from and being shaped by, she never compromised truth, but loved, loved at the same time, like didn't dehumanize. And I think that's a lesson for us today in that you don't fight dehumanization by dehumanizing the dehumanizers. That's a formula that will never work. It will will never work. work. And I I know I can be guilty of that. If I'm being completely honest, just like when I see January 6th happen and I watch and I process that, like, I start to dehumanize the dehumanizers and I then I'm, I'm caught in the same wheel. 
that, yeah. that, that, that they're caught in and I'm not actually helping move anything forward. And so I also think that for her, for Anne, this model of truth and love holding together to preserve the dignity and not to, and to believe that no one is beyond redemption. That's because that's what he said. He said, when that story of the union member saying, hey, this is a picture of who CP was, but this is who he is today. He said, black people had a worldview shaped by their faith to understand that redemption was possible, then enable them to believe that even a Klansman isn't beyond redemption, the leader of a clan of the clan. And so it's like, that's yeah, really he said, to me. He said, we know that story. We know, we know that, that story. story. That's yeah. a story we recognize. Yeah. And so to me, that goes back to the last things that you said in, in season two of, we got to be anchored in this work and know what those anchors are. You know, for, for me and you, our faith is, is central to our anchoring, right? And yeah. I think that it was to Anne's story as well. It anchored her to understand and then enable her to to believe at a very gut level. Hey, I don't, I know the truth. So I'm not, I'm going to be unwavering in my protection of truth and also unwavering in my love for humanity and to preserve the dignity, even of my enemy. And man, if that's not a relevant lesson for us today, I don't know what is. Yeah. Amen. There it is. I really, it is. it's amazing. Yeah, it's truly, truly, truly a gift to have this start our season three, because I feel filled up. I yeah. don't feel depleted. What he did was turn change on its head, where in a season where we feel like we're so tired, he illuminates it in a way that says, oh, there actually is a way where you can, you're entering into wholeness and flourishing by changing the right ways. Because when you avoid dehumanizing people, you avoid dehumanizing yourself too. You actually end up then finding real true life. And I think that's why we feel like our cups are full in this conversation, because it feels like we're, we're stumbling onto a path here that yeah. I think I'm hoping season three will, will be able to walk. All right, buckle up guys, buckle up. We're gonna buckle be on a journey, up, it's gonna be great. I'm ready, let's do it. All right, Jess, until next right, time, friend. Thank you, I'll see you, friend. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. People are writing multi-million dollar checks to white firms like every day, and they're able to come back and ask for more, and it's and they can fail and fail fast, and they can, I'm like, well, we got one shot. We've done everything except what seems the most obvious and dignifying thing to do. 